G'day mate, Forty here. Just listening to an audio article from Vox, The Radical Political Power of Friendship and how it can absolutely transform politics. Did you know there's something generative about Hannah Arendt's dinner parties? That's what we need of. That's what we need more of in this world. I'm sure Elon Musk would agree. We need, we, we need more power that is generative. Isn't that swell? When you look at Arendt's writing, you can clearly see that these cocktail parties were a key part to her understanding of how the forces that wanted to eradicate the humanness of humanity, forces she understood all too well, could be defeated at their own game. Ah, oh, that's pretty awesome, mate. We're gonna, we're gonna defeat the forces that want to eradicate the humanness of humanity. I mean, wow, such a such a brave, brave stand. Think, but it, it's something that we can all get behind. Right? Let's fight against those forces that want to reduce the humanness of our humanity. Do, do you agree? Can I get an amen? By the time Arendt was famous, she'd come to believe that the project of life wasn't to think about the world's problems in order to solve them, since no single fix could be found. Instead, the goal was to keep thinking. Wow, that's powerful. So, we don't think to solve all of the world's problems, because there's no one solution to all the world's problems, but uh, we just keep thinking. Such stunning insight. Well, I've never found any benefit from Hannah Arendt's work. I think she's useless. <laughs> and so, with regard to the power of friendship, the more you have in common, the more powerful and easy your friendship. So, friendship between family members tends to be more easy than friendship between friends, right? You usually have to work a lot more maintaining a friendship with uh, friends as opposed to family. Because you have more in common with family. You have more genetic and often environmental things in common than you do with just friends. So when you disagree with friends, right, that causes instability in a relationship. Doesn't mean it's the end of the friendship, but it makes it less stable. Like most great writers, Hannah Arendt wrote about the same few topics over and over, refashioned and reconfigured to fit new circumstances. Maybe her most important recurring idea. Okay, so just because you do that doesn't make you a great writer. <laughs> okay. Dia is a more mundane, the love of the world. For Arendt, a more mundane means you Monday. can't fool yourself about the world, closing your eyes Monday. to the realities of history and injustice. That's why. Instead, loving the world means working on two specific tasks. The first is doggedly insisting on seeing the world just as it is. With okay. I'm all for that. I'll subscribe to that. I'm down. It's disappointments and horrors, and committing to it all the same. The second... What does it mean committing to it as opposed to committing to the next world? Is that the uh, startling insight here? Is encountering people in the world and embracing their alterity or difference. Are you ready to embrace other people's alterity or difference? Right. That isn't what makes friendship. Right? Friendship is largely about what you have in common. Right? What you may have in common is simply a contrarian perspective or personality. But uh, the less you have in common, the less stable the friendship. That 
last piece, loving people for their difference, is essential to Arendt's thinking and her friendships, as well as her social gatherings. Oh yeah, I'm sure she just loves people for their difference. Somehow I suspect that most of her friends were Jewish. I suspect that most of the people at her social gatherings were Jewish. So, all this high-minded talk about loving people for their difference, uh, Count Me is somewhat skeptical. Arendt sees friendship as allied to politics. Not as a substitute for politics, nor as a way of doing politics, but as a condition necessary for the survival of politics as she understood it, writes John Nixon in his book, Hannah Arendt and the Politics of Friendship. Friendship is what lies between the private world of the familial, tribal, and religious affiliation, and the political world of institutional and association affiliation based not on family, tribe, or religion, but on equality. Oh, yeah. It's just uh, coming together in equality. That's what really makes uh, society work. Now, it's the family and the community and the tribe that mediates between the individual and in institutions. Right? Uh, friendship can help, but it's primarily the family, relations, community, and the tribe. The idea of friendship being necessary for politics is strange to ponder, but for Arendt, politics was not a totalizing identity marker. Yet just oh, as opposed to whom? You know, who are the great uh, thinkers who claim that politics is a totalizing identity marker? In certain situations it is, right? When the enemy comes into view and threatens your very existence, your life, right? In life and death situations, yeah, then politics can become a total identity, a total, total power. Just importantly, she wasn't saying that friendship with people across the aisle is somehow going to save us or that all politics have the same impact on humans. Instead, aren't means something slightly different. That friendship with other people, including those you generally agree with, subverts power. Friendship, in which people... Does friendship subvert power? It can, but uh, usually friendship is in aid of power, right? Normally, you don't make friends to subvert power, but uh, one common element of, of friendship is, is that uh, you may combine some resources to get things done. See and recognize one another's differences. Affirm and challenge those differences. Affirm those differences and challenge those differences? Really, is that what, what friendship tends to be about? I don't know. In my experience, it's, it's more about what you have in common. Right? You go to the same school, you belong to the same religion, you're part of the same tribe, you have interests in common, you live close to each other, right? you're in the same class, you're in the same profession, you have similar goals. Right? It's what you have in common that uh, tends to unite people, not their differences. Pushes back against tyrannical forces that try to deny our individuality and dignity. As Nixon. Oh, tyrannical forces that try to deny our individuality and dignity. Yeah, that's what what friendship does. I don't know. Thinking back over my 50 plus years of having friends, uh, not much of the friendship that I've experienced has been 
invested in denying tyrannical forces that want to deny my dignity and difference. That's just not being a component of my friendships. I can't even think of where it's been a small component. I mean, this is all idealistic, highfalutin stuff. Just don't think there's much of a connection here with reality. Through our friendships, we learn to relate to one another as free and equal agents. And crucially, to carry what we have learned from those friendships. Wait, wait, is it about meeting as free and equal agents? Uh, Often, there'll be some disparity in power. So, not sure about this. We have the exercise of freedom and the recognition of equal worth back into the world. True Amormundi recognizes that our problems will never be fixed, that there is no perfect theory or principle that will unlock the puzzle of existence and solve our problems. And aren't rights. That's why politics exists. In politics, we come together, committed to the world, willing to raise our eyes and look at one another. So I'm taking a break here from the Manly to Spitbridge walk. Manly is seven miles from Sydney and a thousand miles from Cares. To debate and critically discuss the world, continually working our way toward what we would like it to become, knowing the work will never be finished. So, working with a friend towards what we'd like the world to become, that hasn't been the major component of my friendships. Like, that's been an element of my friendships, but it's not been the big element, it's not the being the glue, it's not been the, the main thing that we have in common. How about your friendships, mate? Doing so requires us to see one another as individuals with equal dignity, but very different ways of being. Our idiosyncrasies make us who we are, and those unique traits and eccentricities empower us to care for one another. Oh, man, I tried to talk this way with my mates. They would have tied me up and dragged me behind a ute for 10 kilometers until I promised not to talk this way anymore. We see how someone is different from us, and we choose to love that difference, thus expanding our love beyond ourselves. I don't know. This just doesn't correspond with... My experience of friendship, just you know, loving that they're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and the Steelers beat the Cowboys in two heartbreaking 1970s Super Bowls. Right? This has not been my experience. It's not the differences that have been the things that I primarily loved about my friends. So politics is where we focus on everything that happens between all the individuals who make up a society. It's where we repair the threads that bind us together. Really? Is it... Really? Is that what politics is about? Repairing the threads that bind us together? I thought politics is about organizing in the common defense. I think politics was standing up and getting prepared for the enemy when the enemy comes into sight. Or politics is about the distribution of resources. But uh, is it really about... They're celebrating our differences. Yet it's balanced with the knowledge that while people see the world differently for different reasons, we can't make up stories that paper over our reality. So, liberalism, I think we're talking about liberalism here. Liberalism acknowledges that there's no agreement on final principles. And yet, 
that liberalism formed the United States has gone crusading all around the world to try to force you know, final principles on people such as the Iraqis and the Afghans. Racial history, class oppression, gender discrimination, prejudices of all kinds, we have to own up to them all. Really? That's how we start to generate freedom. That re really? We have to own up to classism and racism and sexism and that's how we generate freedom. No, I think how we generate freedom is that we get really strong as compared to our enemies. Requires us to think and talk with others and sometimes drink and eat with them too. How can one person in their specificity grasp the enormity of history and existence? We are dropped down into a broken world where humans hurt one another. To love the world, Lauren says, we need oases where we can retreat and be renewed. Oh man, not really getting a whole heck of a lot out of this Vox article. Okay, May 40 here. I'm at Manly looking out on the Sydney Harbour, looking across to Watson's Bay there. And uh, thinking about the power of the primal, right? The primal passions. And one of the things that I loved about converting uh, to Judaism, getting to know Jews, is how blunt they are, how honest, forthright they are. Uh, I guess many non-Jews would consider that consider this uh, bluntness crude, offensive, unenlightened, not touched by the dove or the spirit. But I like it. So I'm listening to an article from Texas Monthly on 50 years of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Station KBIL announcing that the Dallas Cowboys were looking for a new kind of cheerleader. Dancers. That was the idea. More than a hundred showed up for tryouts. Only seven made the cut. Right, so if you're a, you're a sex and love addict or a porn addict, I know Twitter may be a dangerous place to go. Like I was looking at a thread on, on Twitter or a hashtag on Twitter Los Angeles as I do so it's like you know, all this hardcore pornography you know, scrolls across my screen so one has to know one's bottom line is what is bad for one so going to a football game with cheerleaders may be incredibly triggering for some people actually eight did but an aspiring model dropped out before the season began they would become known as the original seven Baker Anna Carpenter, Rosemary Hall, Dolores Makeda, Kerry O'Brien, Denavoy Nichols, and Dixie Smith. Each of them stood in that tunnel, staring at the artificial turf and the stands of a new football stadium named for the state whose glory it hoped to capture. The Dallas Cowboys had had cheerleaders before, including a group of high schoolers and Bobby. So right-wing commitments tend to be concentric, right? They tend to start with the family. Go to your relations, your friends, people on your block, your community, your church, your synagogue, and then extend to your city, to your state, to your nation. Right. The left tends to have leapfrogging loyalties. I think this is analysis from Steve Saylor. So you may be loyal to yourself, to your spouse, and then to you know, hungry transsexuals in Kenya and then leapfrog to you know, oppressed uh, strippers in Florida, then leapfrog to, I don't know, starving Uyghurs in China. Right? 
So football, team sports tend to be highly heterosexual and they tend to appeal to people with right-wing concentric loyalties. Socks, pleated skirts who yelled, charge! They didn't dance and they didn't wear that. It's tough to remember in our skin-saturated age, but cleavage and bare midriffs weren't just unusual back then, they were scandalous. This moment in 1972 marked the debut of a bold experiment, a very Texas hybrid of pageant beauty, good girl etiquette, and come-hither slink. So I remember the first time I went to a kosher eatery, uh, the Persian woman behind the counter you know, found out that my friend Michael and I were both single, and uh, she said, I, I want to see your tax returns. Like before she set us up, she wanted to see our tax returns, right? That's how blunt and bottom line oriented she was. Now, most Jews won't ask your tax returns. I don't think anyone else, any other Jews ever done that. But it does, does echo a Jewish frankness about money, sex, power, and these primal passions. Baker looked up at the sky whenever she got anxious, and she could see the sunlight fading and the stadium lights blazing from where she stood in the mouth of the tunnel. Right, so there's certain kinds of sex appeal that are considered kosher by societies. You can be an actress, you know, does nude simulated sex scenes, but you're an actress as opposed to a porn star who's just a glorified hooker. Texas Stadium had a hole in the roof, a design quirk, plans for a retractable roof were squelched because the price tag spun into an asset so God could watch his favorite team one player famously put it as the drums of the live band started to pound the seven cheerleaders burst from that tunnel and all of a sudden we heard noise from the fans and we were going like what's going on Baker told me and her honeyed twang Texas Stadium erupted in a joyful noise she can still hear 50 years later and they're pointing at us we didn't know that we had introduced something new to football. What they introduced was sex and glamour into the gladiator arena of modern sports. And this is being copied now by teams all around the world, even in India, even in Australia. It's a winning formula. They launched a wave of imitations across the NFL, creating a blueprint for beauty that's practically branded on the cultural imagination. It was a watershed year for women, a time when the forces of freedom were starting to be unleashed, but also clash. Roe v. Wade was making it. Wow, who would have thought that uh, extending freedom might uh, result in clashes of freedom? <laughs> of course it's going to. You can never extend freedom uh, with one group without taking it away from other groups. G'day, mate 40 here. I'm pretty shocked to find out that the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders' popularity came with a dark side. Who could have imagined that? After a performance. So listening to an article in Texas Monthly, 50 years of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Came with a dark side though, all that popularity. Tex Schramm told photographer Bob Shaw when he saw the image, a shot that would sell around a million copies and turn the cheerleaders into the country's hottest pinups. But this popularity came with a dark side. That year, after a performance in Wichita, Kansas, the cheerleaders were walking back to their bus when fans descended on them in a way they never had before. A couple of girls... Everything comes with a dark side. Power, popularity, fame... 
money, happiness, connection, everything comes with the dark side. People started running, then we started running, and then the crowd was running. Tammy Barber remembered. It was our Beatles moment. We were running for our lives because these people were grabbing at us. Barber sat inside the bus as strangers pounded the sides. Wow, who would have thought that uh, you know, teasing people might uh, might frustrate them, might, uh, might provoke a reaction? Pretty shocking. My heart was beating so fast, and it was the first time I thought, why are people crazy? We're just us. The visibility... All right, well, not, uh, not too shocking. I think uh, evolution would probably explain that. He brought threats even Susan Mitchell couldn't manage. One night, Barbara picked up the phone in the apartment where she lived alone. Good night, Tammy, said an unfamiliar man's voice. She hung up, but he called back another night, and she was so scared she moved. Yeah, that's why women traditionally have gotten married and have had someone to protect them. A father, a brother, an uncle, male relative, male friend, a husband, a community. She wasn't the only one. You'll have to have an unlisted number, Mitchell instructed the cheerleaders, but often that wasn't enough. A cheerleader named Billy Mitchell once opened her eyes in the middle of the night to find a strange man standing beside her bed. She chased him out, and then she moved too. Right, so this is the price of fame. Right? It's not just uh, cheerleaders who've had to pay this price. I can't tell you the number of times that I've woken up in the middle of the night and found some attractive vixen just standing there next to me. Like just wanting to use me. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders had become a bona fide global sensation. They starred in a hit 1979 made-for-TV movie. They became part of the story arc in a two-part episode of The Love Boat. And they got paid $15 a game. Right? And they'd have to rehearse five nights a week for hours. faced off against some Cowboys football players on Family Feud. And along the way, Mitchell had the impossible task of managing these internal contradictions. She had to keep the cheerleaders safe while presenting them as endlessly available. She touted their singularity in public while quashing their egos in private. She had to control this wildfire. At the same time, she fanned the flames. Cheerleaders are... Yeah. I mean... This is how the world works. You fan the flames and try to control the fire. <laughs> That's such an apt phrasing. Right? Uh, head of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders is not the only one who's uh, faced this dilemma. Uh, live streamers have these dilemmas. Famous people, actors, models, celebrities. Right? They want to fan the flames and control the flames across the NFL started copying the Cowboys, with more than 20 squads transforming seemingly overnight into sexpot dancers. Yeah, who would have thought that there could be a dark side to becoming a professional sexpot dancer? Really shocking. I would have thought it'd just be sweetness and light. 
who knew that when you fanned the flames of male sexual appetite that uh, could lead to unwanted advances and aggression and criminal behavior. Sports Illustrated called it the Great Cheerleading War of 1978. The Cowboys had become the most visible and most valuable franchise in the NFL, and a huge part of the brand was these fetching women. It was a match made... Well, think about your average National Football League player. All the head injuries, right? All the other injuries, right? The enormous toll that playing professional football takes on people, even high school and college football. Right? People who played even high school football and tend to walk with limps, have ongoing pain. Right? The body was not, was not built to play football, tackle football. But uh, people love the game. They love the side benefits that come with being good with the game. I mean, soccer. Right? It always hurt me when I had the ball. I didn't like to head the ball, and it makes people dumber. Right? People have lower IQs after heading a ball. And even soccer has its own CTE, you know, brain injury problems. People often die early after a lifetime playing soccer. Everything comes with a dark side. There's a price to everything. In marketing heaven, in the center of the field, Captain America, Roger Staubach. And on the sidelines, 36 Miss Americas in a famously tardy uniform. The year 1978 was also when an adult film actress by the name of Bambi Woods donned that glorious uniform, or at least an imitation of it, in a less than glorious scene. Debbie Does Dallas was a shoestring porno film whose plot, so to speak, followed a young woman with the dream of cheering for a certain legendary Dallas football team. Yeah, it, uh, it became a monster hit. Because it taps into something primal, primal, and uh, it's often a price to tapping into that which is primal. You get primal reactions back you don't always anticipate or enjoy. The marquee outside the New York City theater where it debuted falsely claimed that Woods was an ex-Dallas cowgirl cheerleader. And the Cowboys, presumably incensed that the wholesome sexiness they pioneered had gone full frontal, sued for trademark infringement, resulting in the deliciously named lawsuit, Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders v. Pussycat Cinema. <laughs> Newspapers and TV stations devoured this saga. The Cowboys eventually won the case, but the media frenzy turned a fly-by-night skin flick into a blockbuster. In turn... The Barbara Streisand effect, right? When Barbara Streisand tried to have a photo of her home removed from Google to spark more interest in seeing that photo. The cheerleaders doubled down on their wholesome image. They launched a line of children's clothing that included a little satin jacket and developed a new logo of a doe-eyed cartoon girl dressed as a cheerleader and looking all of seven. Yeah, I wonder how many orthodox... Jewish women, girls, grew up to want to be Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. I don't think it'd be that many. Okay, 3.7 kilometers till we hit the Spit Bridge. Young girls had by then become a major fan base for the cheerleaders. But the sexual... Right, like young girls want to be, grow up to be the object of male worship and desire. 
place the squad had introduced was tricky to put back in the bottle. That same fall of 1978, five women dressed as cheerleaders posed for a feature in Playboy. So it reminds me of a Playboy story, the dark side of Playboy, that what, 12 part A&E special on, on the, the rape, the drugging and raping, uh, the use of Linda Lovelace with, with a dog, uh, Hugh Hefner raping Dorothy Stratton Ainley. Uh, there's all sorts of horrible, horrible behavior going on in the Playboy empire while simultaneously getting really good press. Much of it was because Hugh Hefner and Playboy have you know, videotape going on all around the Playboy mansion. So many members of the media, you know, they would be taped in compromising situations. So they would then be quite reluctant to say anything publicly against Playboy. The group was a rogue outfit called the Texas Cowgirls, a rival Dallas-based agency formed by women who had quit the cheerleaders, fed up with the rules, worn down by the demanding schedule and low pay, or been nixed from the squad as auditions became cutthroat. The cowgirls made appearances at places where the cheerleaders wouldn't dare go, <laughs> often events where alcohol was served, and their fees were shared evenly among the members unlike the cheerleaders, whose occasional appearance fees went to a select group of favorite members of the squad and who did not see a dime from the squad's numerous merchandising deals. The Texas Cowgirls' splashy debut in Playboy was a riff on the cheerleaders' top-selling 1977 poster. Five glamazons and a trunk... Oh, Grotto Point Aboriginal engravings, bro. This looks pretty cool. Some amazing art. It... It rivals out of Michelangelo and Monet in the, the sophistication. Unbelievable. Oh, give me the shakes and the shivers. I mean, this is some art. Now, I don't know why people are like, so worshipful of the Sistine Chapel when they could, when they could come and see like fish engravings. Wow. I mean, this is better than the Sistine Chapel. I mean, this is art that just takes your breath away. Ankle formation, except for one detail. This time, their tops were untied. Oh, no. Despite the controversies of the late 70s, the cheerleaders rarely encountered any sort of public backlash. But in 1982, they arrived at Fresno State University in California to rehearse for a halftime performance. And as they entered the campus, they were... Just imagine that being widely adored public figures playing on the most primal of emotions, right? Without any backlash, right? How long do you think that can go on? Greeted by a big white bedsheet hanging out the window of a building, spray-painted with the words, hearts and minds, not bumps and grinds. Powerful. The cheerleaders had transformed culture in the previous decade. But so had second-wave feminism. Yeah, the cheerleaders transform culture seems a little exaggerated. Let's say they mildly amplified things that were already in the culture. Ms. Magazine debuted the same year, 1972. And what a joyous bunch of people. What a fun-loving, happy, wise-cracking bunch of people like the Ms. Magazine crowd. That iconic uniform did... 
That is that liberalism always tends to scolding, bullying, hectoring, heck without educating, bullying, hectoring, scolding. You wouldn't have the liberal left. Right? There's, there's no liberal left without taking on a mission to civilize the peasants, to bully and educate people. They need to wear their face masks and they need to not dead name people. They need to use the proper pronouns. A consciousness-raising publication co-founded by Gloria Steinem. Nothing like a good consciousness-raising, right? I always associate consciousness-raising raising with good times, joy, happiness, humor, lightheartedness, not taking yourself too seriously. Right? I don't know. How, what do you associate with uh, consciousness-raising? helped popularize ideas about sexual objectification and the male gaze during... Yeah, boy, that sounds like a good time, right? Boy, nothing nothing I like more than being educated about objectification and the male gaze. Right? I mean, we could do with some education and hectoring and bullying on that. Thank God for Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine. Decade when legal victories like Roe v. Wade and the 1974 Equal Credit Opportunity Act were changing women's lives. Oh, and changing them just for the better. Right? Nothing like the murder of millions of kids to and transform women's lives for the good. By 1982, a feminist vernacular had seeped into the American vocabulary in the same way hot pants and jiggle had seeped into network programming. Yeah, how about a middle path between the two, right? A little bit of modesty combined with femininity. Right? Traditional mores where women would have fathers, brothers, relatives, friends, communities, churches who would uh, encourage them to Turn it down a little bit if they were going over the top. Okay, night 40 here. Sex scandal and sisterhood. 50 years of the Dallas Cowboys from Texas Monthly. And on the sidelines of Fresno State, those two forces were about to collide. The drumbeat of protest had been building all week. A professor in the physical education department named Rita Flake started a petition. Swift. Right, once you become popular, once you become subject to adoration, right, there's always going to be some sort of backlash. Right. You build something, someone's going to want to tear it down. He picked up by the news media, calling the cheerleaders demeaning to women because their primary function was to provide sexually suggestive entertainment for male sports fans. Sex objects. That was the slur that followed the squad. Even if the cheerleaders, and many fans, saw themselves as more. Role models. Goodwill ambassadors. Role models. <laughs> That's hilarious. Role models. Saw themselves as role models. God, people tend to have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. soldiers in Korea and elsewhere overseas. So when director Suzanne Mitchell heard about Flake's comment, she shot back in the press. The first thing I'd like to ask her is, what has she ever done for her country? We helicopter into the DMZ. 
Things got ugly at the performance later that day when protesters gathered outside the stadium. Dana Presley Kilmer, who joined the squad in 1981, remembers the ominous vibe. It was so nasty that the faculty at the university had to form a human fence on either side of us so we could get out of the bus and get onto the field without protesters throwing rocks. The confusing part for the cheerleaders was that the appearance was a charity event to raise money for the college's athletics department. But in the heated battle of the sexes, the cheerleaders were now deemed to be on the wrong side. The cheerleaders may have been thought of as eye candy for men, but they had become a lightning rod for many women, and still are to this day. Yeah, women, like men, don't like competition. They don't like invidious comparisons. They don't like being seen negatively uh, compared to you know, other others. Right? People are lazy and selfish and self-centered, and they don't like to be shown up. Their popularity raised complicated questions about women's beauty and sexuality. How do you extol those qualities without being defined by them? Exploitation is a Well, maybe you have other contributions aside from just those qualities, right? Like the charity work that uh, the cheerleaders did. That's good, fair dinkum, pro-social behavior. ...that often gets thrown around by critics of the cheerleaders... But who decides that these women are being exploited if they say they're not? Right, exploitation is purely subjective. Right, there's no objective meaning to the word exploitation. We really were doing what we wanted to do, Kilmer told me from her home in East Texas. No one forced me to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Quite the opposite. She beat out more than 2,000 women for her spot. Oh, Jesus. By the end of the decade, the cheerleader's tightly calibrated mixture of sweetness and licentiousness was about to face an entirely different challenge. Oh, Jesus, there are more of them. The team's new owner. One Saturday in early 1989, Mitchell's assistant, Debbie... That's the Australian water dragon. ...Bond Hanson arrived at the office to discover all sorts of unfamiliar men wandering the halls, shuffling through papers. There were all these suits, remembered Hanson. She called Mitchell, who was at home. What was happening? The evening news would tell them soon enough. An Arkansas oil man named Jerry Jones had bought the Dallas Cowboys. A new sheriff was in town. Hanson had been with the cheerleaders since 1979. Through much of the following decade, she'd proven a trusty second lieutenant to Mitchell. Once, after hearing a rumor that one hopeful was moonlighting as a stripper, Mitchell dispatched her to visit every strip club in Dallas. I had never been to a strip club, okay, said Hanson. I was hiding in the corner because I didn't want anybody to recognize me. She slunk around in oversized sunglasses and a fur coat. Since her last name at the time was Bond, this detective work earned her the nickname 007. Mitchell and Hanson had steered the cheerleaders out of the scandalous late 70s and the feminist pushback of the early 80s. Yeah, they steered, but must need the cooperation of society. And you get that in part by doing all these good deeds, these charity functions, these visits to troops and DMZs, right? You want to get society on your side. You want to get the community on your side. And everything goes much easier. By leaning on the rules. The rules were used to keep things steady and predictable. But they also offered instruction in a certain kind of southern womanhood. 
A lot of people don't know this. We were a grooming school, too, Hansen told me. The matter of when to wear heels and what fork to use with the salad might seem like trivial concerns, but those questions could be overwhelming to small-town women hoping to be something more. The ultimate goal of each cheerleader was made clear in Mitchell's photocopied handouts, which were given to rookies. A girl becomes a lady. Jerry Jones didn't seem to be a fan of rules. Not theirs, anyway. He fired Coach Landry. He shunted Tech Schramm to the side till the legendary manager walked off the field he'd built. And the... Oh, oh my gosh, guys. Look, play in the water, guys. G'day mate, Forty here. So, I saw some clips of Kanye West going on Alex Jones along with Nick Fuentes and uh, Kanye wore a full face mask during the whole show. That was uh, rather interesting. He talked about how he likes Hitler and likes Nazis and he likes Jews. So uh, edgy stuff from uh, Kanye West. And, I mean, I'm just wondering how his supporters feel. I, I went to Candace Owens. I wanted to see Candace Owens' reaction to Kanye West. And uh, she hasn't tweeted in a couple of days. So isn't uh, Candace Owens a big uh, Kanye supporter? So here's the Jerusalem Post. I like Hitler. Kanye West denies Holocaust in Alex Jones' interview. Kanye West said that every human, especially Hitler, is something of value that they bring to the table. Well, empirically, I'm sure that's right. American rapper Kanye West praised Nazi leader Adolf Hitler, denied the Holocaust in an interview with conspiracy theorist Alex Jones Thursday night. I like Hitler. I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. The Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. Hitler's a lot of redeeming qualities. Kanye West said while wearing a full black face mask. So what you wear is going to have a big impact on how people react to you. And that uh, Kanye was doing this in a, in a full black face mask uh, might diminish his credibility with some people who are otherwise on the fence. I like Hitler. So yeah, apparently Kanye has had a very long uh, fascination with, with Hitler, which many men do, right? I think most men like to watch uh, documentaries about Hitler and the Nazis. So, that's not so shocking. But when he says the Holocaust is not what happened, and Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities, I'm not sure that will go over too well. So... Oops. So we got here... Uh, Come on, man. Play the on clip. Bloody hell. I'm trying to run a high-quality production here. I'm not I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. I know you're trying to be shocking, but that, I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I did the help. Oh, bloody hell. Man. <laughs> the, this is Kanye talking about how he likes Hitler. Not trying to be shocking there. Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that man. I know you're trying to be shocking, but that, 
I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I the the Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. No, you're trying to be shocking with that. I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I the the Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. I know you're trying to be shocking with that. I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I the the Holocaust. Okay, pretty pretty bizarre stuff there. Uh, Kanye says Hitler did not kill six million Jews. He had a really cool outfit. He was a really good architect. He did not kill six million Jews. So Alex Jones keeps appealing to Kanye to you know, present himself in a better light. So Alex Jones was like the, the voice of, of reason in this interview. But uh, Kanye keeps wanting to turn the conversation in a dark direction. So he wants to talk about all of his positive qualities. I see good things about him. I love everyone. Jewish people are not going to tell me you can love us or you can love what we're doing to your contracts. But this guy, Hitler, that invented highways and invented the microphone that I use as a musician, cannot say out loud that he ever did anything good. I'm done with that. I'm done with classifications. Every human being something of value they bring to the table, especially Hitler. I don't like the word evil next to Nazis, he's added. I love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. <laughs> okay, if we take this seriously, alright, if you love everyone, then you also have to love Nazis. Right, this is a uh, logical extension of Christianity. Now, Hitler didn't invent highways and he didn't invent the microphone. And uh, even even people who are evil, they also do do good things. Uh, Kanye West compared himself to Jews in the Holocaust, saying there are Jewish people basically hiding me under their floorboards right now. It's like a reverse version of the Holocaust. Okay. So I don't think that's going to go over real well with people who are otherwise undecided. And uh, whatever Kanye West is going through right now, it's not equivalent to what happened in the Holocaust. So we're at Manly Beach right now, and the slogan is we're seven miles from Sydney and a thousand miles from Care. Kino Take, that's it was worth it for PPP to take time to consider the situation with Care. Godwinson had about 40% correct. So yeah, Kanye is yeah, not not really winning over a lot of converts, I would guess. And I, I don't see how Nick Fuentes and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos are helping themselves. So Kanye says that Donald Trump loves Nick Fuentes and he asked Kanye where he found this kid. Later in the show, Kanye West pulled out a net on a stick and a bottle of Yoohoo and said that together they made up Netanyahu. Pretending they were the incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Pretending, pretending that the net was Netanyahu, Kanye West put on a high voice, had the stick say anti-Semitic stereotypes. I'm the head of Mossad, he pretended, that the Netanyahu stick was saying. I'm going to kill you and take your children away from you. We control the history books, we control the banks, and we always kill people. 
So Kanye did the whole show with Alex Jones in a full face mask. It didn't have all holes for the eyes or the mouth. So <laughs> I was wondering why Yoohoo was trending. Long term, Fuentes can say the Yee fake out was not about Trump or Yee or even the court. It's about the Fuentes business. Godwinson had it about 40% correct. The Fuentes brand is a shock jock. We'll give him the win. Fuentes is Howard Stern 2022. Like Richard Spencer, he's loyal to himself. It's all he sees when he looks at him. Well, Nick Fuentes does not strike me as emotionally unstable. I haven't seen Nick Fuentes do anything that strikes me as emotionally unstable. So, Milo Yiannopoulos seems unstable. Kanye West seems unstable. Nick seems solid. Yeah, I'm not saying he's a good man. I'm not saying that his analysis is solid. I'm seeing that him as a personality seems solid. So a few days ago, Kanye stormed out of podcast appearance with Tim Pool uh, to claim that Jews control the corporate press. So it was back in October, Kanye tweeted that he would go DEFCON 3 on Jews. And he keeps escalating the anti-Jewish analysis. He also claimed that Jewish doctor tried to have him killed now, Nick Martin uh, on Twitter had an interesting analysis. He said that uh, Kanye wanted to get rid of many of his corporate you know, clients, many of the people who were, were representing him. And so all this anti-Jewish stuff seems to be just uh, a way of you know, distancing himself from, from the middleman. So Kanye was unhappy with JP Morgan Chase right, way before he went DEFCON 3 on the Jews. He was also trying to get out of multi-year contracts with Gap and Adidas. Trump not bashing Nick is huge stuff. Yes, he's on stage. We have to wonder if he pays 100k a month so that if he melts. I don't think, I don't think Nick is unstable, right? There's nothing about Nick Fuentes that, that strikes me uh, as being unstable. So, I don't see that. Like, uh, Nick is an entertainer. Nick is funny. I think uh, when when Jimmy Kimmel played a, a clip of Nick saying that it's gay to date girls, it's gay, gay to date guys, you know, I think most of the audience laughed. You know, they, they find him amusing. So, Trump is not bashing Fuentes, yeah, that is huge. Ye is unstable. You have to wonder if he pays 100k a month it was to Milo Yiannopoulos so that if he melts down, at least they walk away with something. Yeah. So, is this, is this bargain really a great bargain for Milo and Nick Fuentes? So, in September, right, September of this year, Rapper and designer Kanye West says he's done with corporate partners and plans to branch out solo. So I think this is the, the genesis of his anti-Jewish tirades. It's time for me to go it alone, he said. It's fine. I made the company's money. The company's made me money. We've created ideas that will change apparel forever. Like the round jacket, the foam runner, and the slides that have changed the shoe industry. Now it's time for Ye to make the new industry. No more companies in between me and the audience. So a lot of people want to get rid of the middleman. Like I remember, 
I was working for a landscaping company and I wanted to quit working for that company and I just wanted to work for this one developer, Doug Hanslick. And so I was sharing with him my, my great ideas and one of them is we'll, we'll buy seedlings and we'll transplant them into bigger pots instead of you know, buying plants in pots which cost uh, 20 bucks. Now we'll buy seedlings which cost like a dollar each and then just transplant them into, I'll transplant them into pots and uh, you know, you'll make 10,000% uh, profit. So I order the seedlings and then I come down with you know, what turns into six years of chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, I barely get through you know, transplanting them, but then they have to grow into these new plots. So often people want to get rid of the middleman, and it doesn't work out so well. Sometimes it works out well to get rid of the middleman, and sometimes it doesn't. So Kanye wanted to get rid of the middleman. I think that's the underlying driver behind all the craziness that he's done. And he's lost about a billion dollars in the process. So if you're smart and if you know what you're doing, getting rid of the middleman can work. But I'm not sure that Kanye is as business savvy as that. Like Kanye has lost over a billion dollars apparently. You know, from his desire just to control things, go his own way, buy his own bank. And uh, that usually doesn't work out. Unless you're particularly smart and savvy, getting rid of the middleman, usually it's not going to work out too well. So Forbes in September. You know, had a report. What's eating Kanye West? Leaving Adidas will drop the volatile superstar. So basically the whole time, Ye has been scapegoating Jews for the dissolution of business deals that he was already looking to end. So he found a way to blow up the deals that he already wanted to end and play the victim. So I wonder how long uh, till Candace Owens weighs in because she's been a big uh, Kanye West supporter. And how many Kanye West supporters you know, still think that uh, he, he's worth throwing throwing a lot in? But it is terribly amusing, right? I mean, I think anyone who's watching this show is in it for the loss, right? None of us think that uh, Jews are in peril because of Kanye's remarks. None of us think that Jews are in peril because of Nick Fuentes' jokes about the Holocaust. So I think we're, we're all in it for the laughs here, right? This is not you know, the end of Jews in America. This is not the end of you know, Jewish influence in America. This is not the, the beginning of the end, right, for, for Jews. All right, this is just, this is just hilarious. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be convinced to start hating Jews, right, because, because of, uh, you know, Kanye West. Like, Kanye West has made anti-Semitism look really stupid. So there's an interesting writer on Vox. He's, he's center-left, but he often makes some really good points. And Zach Buchan, do you ever read him? Kanye West and the End of Wink-Nudge Anti-Semitism. So Kanye West went way further than Alex Jones even imagined. So Alex Jones kept trying to do damage control all through the interview. And uh, cutting to a commercial just after West again affirms I like Hitler. But he couldn't unring the bell. So Kanye West, whom Alex Jones was trying to stand up for as some kind of free speech martyr, was 
repeatedly expressing his support and his sympathy for Hitler and the Nazis. So Kanye has evolved into America's most famous anti-Semite. Now, he's certainly emboldening the anti-Semitic fringe, perhaps even endangering Jews. That I'm highly skeptical about. And it's not going to be some mass pogrom. Yeah, an individual may be disturbed and, you know, do something criminal against Jews, that that might happen. But Jews as a group are not in danger because of Kanye West. Right? What puts groups into danger when there are fundamental conflicts of interest between groups? Right? It's not rhetoric. Right? You know, there all, there's all sorts of nasty rhetoric in, in the Bible about Jews, about non-Jews. That's not going to cause a genocide. What causes a genocide, a fundamental, urgent, zero-sum conflicts of interest between groups. So here's the left-wing take. Since Donald Trump has brought the far right into GOP, it's become increasingly common to hear coded language about Jews, attacks on globalists or George Soros. Right, attacks on globalists and attacks on George Soros are not anti-Jewish. Right, to say that, you have to claim that the majority of Jews are globalists and the majority of Jews are allied with George Soros. So as Kanye West has drifted into fringe conspiracy theories, many actors on the right have courted him as a potential ally. Yeah, that's stupid. Donald Trump had dinner with him, Tucker Carlson had him on his show, an official GMB Twitter account celebrated him. They all seemed to assume that Kanye West knew how to play the game, sell the anti-work message, even broadcast some dog whistles to the fringe without crossing the line into out-and-out hate speech. Well, Kanye is not the most sophisticated player around. He's not the most subtle. He did not know how to play the game. So all this started October 8th. Kanye West really is about to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Two days later, Tucker Carlson aired an interview with Kanye West claiming he was being silenced or being a free thinker. So, yeah, uh, Tucker does this a lot. He did it with uh, Andrew Tate. I don't think this was such a good idea because uh, Tucker like cut you know many of the more anti-Jewish things that Kanye told him. Crazy? That's not our conclusion. We rarely heard a man speak so honestly and so movingly about what he believes. Tucker Carlson told his audience. So Tucker Carlson is not particularly responsible, not particularly particularly reasonable. Uh, frequently exercises really bad judgment. Uh, frequently has terrible analysis. Uh, misjudged sympathy but still most important pundit around, right? Tucker gets a lot wrong. Like he bats about 500, and he gets it right about half the time, frequently saying brave words that no other pundit on TV would say, about half the time he's wrong. So in the Tucker Carlson interview, Kanye went to Tucker's favorite topics. He railed against the genocide of the black race, being perpetrated by Planned Parenthood. He accused liberal Nazis of trying to silence him. Now, there's all sorts of footage that Tucker had cut from the conversation. So Kanye expresses paranoid beliefs that fake children and professional actors have been placed in his homes to sexualize his kids. Like Kanye is off the reservation. Like anyone who thought that Kanye was some powerful, important truth teller, I think they made a misjudgment. So Kanye said, I prefer my kids new Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. 
Earth to Kanye, just because you like Hanukkah, it doesn't come with any financial engineering. So, for Tucker's perspective, it made sense to edit out those clips that made Kanye look crazy. Because Tucker wanted to claim that uh, Kanye sounded sane. That's what Tucker said. But the, the clips show that Tucker did, that Kanye did not appear sane, that he appeared crazy. So Tucker knew what Kanye West had really said, knew how bizarre the uncut interview was. So cut, Tucker cut the unhinged portions, tried to present a relatively mainstream Kanye West as a martyr for the conservative cause to save Kanye from his own unhinged remarks. So Scott Greer says Tucker is on our side. A lot of you know, people on the alt-right think Tucker is on our side. He can get millions and millions of boomers to nod along with talking points that only previously been seen on V-Dare and American Renaissance a few years ago. That's true. Now, the question is, are those talking points accurate? Do they provide an added clarity? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So for years, anti-hate groups like the ADL have warned about this tactic of attacks on George Soros for use of terms like globalists serve to embolden Jewish hatred. Right. And then by that, right. what will lead to Jewish hatred primarily will be the behavior of Jews and the situation. That right. is, the situation creates some massive conflicts between Jewish and non-Jewish Americans Right, some massive conflicts of interest. Right, when there are massive group conflicts of interest, then that will lead to negative repercussions for Jews. So, an official House GOP Twitter account claimed Kanye West as part of a new Republican pantheon. This was done October 6th, just uh, two days before Kanye went to death, death country on the Jews. So, it is interesting that Donald Trump has not condemned Nick Fuentes. I mean, Kanye West is now a full prior, but it also shows the benefits of free speech. By allowing Kanye to speak freely, that people get to see who he really is. And I don't really think that uh, Kanye has, has you know, developed a whole lot of you know, anti-Jewish attitudes. Like, I don't think there's some kind of you know, grom growing in America due to uh, Kanye West. cheap data. So Kanye West, full pariah, but again, that's not going to put Jews you know, in danger. In fact, it's probably be good for Jews because it shows that you know, the most famous anti-Jewish person in America is absolutely unhinged. Right? If you, if you believe in something, you don't want you know, unhinged people doing interviews in a full face mask, you know, without any holes for your eyes or, or your mouth. Right? If you believe in something, you don't want someone like Kanye West saying the same thing. It's like what happens after there's a mass shooting and they use some dissident right talking points. Right? That then makes it much harder for normal people to use those same talking points. Right? You have to, when your rhetoric is associated with you know, ugly behavior, horrible behavior, unhinged behavior, criminal behavior, deadly behavior, you have to think twice, three times, four times, five times about using the same rhetoric. 
so Kenya West, I think, has made it actually harder for criticism of Jews in America. So the left says that Kanye reveals what lurks behind the rhetoric that mainstream conservatives employ, such as globalists and George Soros. And it reveals the type of forces they're willing to ally themselves with in a seem politically convenient. Well, it is striking how Trump is so reluctant to condemn the alt-right, the distant right, David Duke, uh, Nick Fuentes, Richard Spencer, etc. So, uh, Richard Spencer, like, it's, it's striking that he feels zero guilt for any damage that he's done to anyone. I, I don't know, tell me I'm wrong. Do, do you know where, where Richard Spencer has expressed regret, guilt, shame, sadness, the need to make amends to the people he's damaged? Like, I don't think anyone did more damage to Donald Trump than Richard Spencer. But uh, it would, I don't think it would ever occur to Richard in his current mindset to you know, apologize for the damage he does. Kanye West has bombed his career. The right wing's plausible deniability is collateral damage. Okay, so thoughtful left wing critique there from Vox and Zach, uh, Zach Bucamp. So yeah, a lot of people on the right were very quick to you know, throw in with uh, Kanye West because it just—I think it just appealed to them. It's so cool to you know, ally with a black man. But if you're secure in your own identity, you don't need applause from black people or people outside your group. You don't need to you know, ally yourself with, with those who are just nuts, with the completely unhinged. Okay, scathing official report from U.S. Navy says every officer is up to speed on diversity training. Yay! Not so much on ship handling, right? So it says the U.S. Navy is too woke for war because of a risk-averse, politically correct, control freak top brass. So two Navy ships nearly collided in San Diego Bay. So great news. U.S. Navy up to speed on its diversity training. But uh, ship handling, not so much. Now, also remember Richard Spencer talked a, a month or two ago how he didn't think that uh, Elon Musk wouldn't make any substantial differences on Twitter. Twitter is so much freer. Twitter is such a better place to be these days than prior to Elon taking over. Okay, so Elon Musk is uh, trying to reach out to Kanye West. Elon says, Jesus taught love, kindness, and forgiveness. He used to think that turning the other cheek was weak and foolish, but I was the fool for not appreciating its profound wisdom. So, Elon Musk restored Kanye to Twitter, and now Kanye is has uh, gone full, full unhinged. So, tremendously amusing, right? This whole Kanye pipeline. The, the red hat to red pill pipeline is real, says a friend. Yeah, but many people, they put on their MAGA, Make America Great Again hat, 
they get red-pilled, and then they go unhinged. I mean, the same sort of thing happened to Godwin. So many people have gotten red-pilled and then gone nuts. So, uh, David went on Claire Core's stream to talk about Kanye West and the Jews. Anyone catch that? Uh, Lex Friedman has weighed in. Yay, praising Hitler breaks my heart. I hear that a lot around me. People say, oh, that breaks my heart. Oh, that's so sad. Like, why? Uh, why would you, you know, why would you feel sad about, you know, whatever Kanye West is doing? He, I assure you, Kanye West doesn't feel bad about what you're doing. Uh, Kanye West is not a threat to Jews or to polite society or Western civilization. He's just making himself, you know, look really stupid. The Kanye West fan club is, uh, not happy. <laughs> Here's a great quote, quote from Thucydides. It's a general rule of human nature that we feel contempt for those who try to please, but we respect those who make absolutely no concessions. So, yeah, it, it seems like uh, marginalized movements attract marginalized people, like Kanye West. I mean, he did the whole interview with a ski mask on his face. <laughs> Alex Jones was just doing his whole his level best to try to divert. No friend says, Alex Jones is finished after this interview. Fuentes is off the rails. Yeah, he seems to have crossed the Rubicon. Yeah. A lot of naughty stuff. Okay, to be continued. 40 here. I think the most fascinating story in the news right now is that China is backing off many of its COVID restrictions like in the face of mass protests. So you would think that a dictatorial, you know, powerful state like the one operated by the Chinese Communist Party would not back down, but they're backing down in front of the protests. And what happens when dictatorships start backing down and trying to compromise with protesters? That's frequently the death knell for the dictatorship. So six weeks ago, like Xi Jinping was uh, you know, re-elected to essentially a lifetime in power. Right? We promised you know all these things, new era. He, he seemed in complete control of China's 1.4 billion people. Now we've had this nationwide surge of protests. And a small, mostly youthful, mostly youthful part of the population is demanding an entirely different culture, a more liberal culture, a less controlling culture, a politically freer culture. And this dissent has broken through China's rules against censorship, detentions, official damnation. So the police are rallying to try to stamp out new protests, but the government is compromising with the protesters. Right, so intrusive COVID pandemic controls being restricted. Residents get to return to work for the first time in weeks. Uh, residents are often no longer required to take regular COVID tests. So the official line from the Chinese Communist Party is that uh, the country is entering a new phase in its campaign against the virus. So there have been widespread protests, demonstrations against the COVID lockdowns, 
right? The communists have been searching people's phones, they've been warning would-be protesters, they've been interrogated, interrogating detained participants, they've been staging loud shows of force at potential protest sites. But we've got a flash flood of defiance. So Xi Jinping's Jinping hold on power six weeks ago it seemed unassailable now it looks much less sure so the government's trying to extinguish the current discontent by reducing or eliminating its harshest and most arbitrary COVID prevention measures but now supporters of this protest movement they want far more they want to rein in the Chinese Communist Party so this outrage isn't just coming from one policy. It's been pent up over years. There's no channel for free expression. So now we have thousands of protesters in China. Okay, ostensibly it's about Xi's stringent zero COVID policies, but these protests are flaring into demands for democracy. You've got students on university campuses chanting for an end to censorship. So China has a formidable security apparatus to squash defiance, but the longer these protests run, right, the more chance they have to take fire and produce a powerful backlash to Xi and possibly even lead to his removal from China because he's not been doing a good job. Right? China was on a really good path until about eight years ago. But over the last eight years, China's grown more threatening, more militaristic. They've uh, gotten into more and more fights with their neighbors. So more and more nations have been incentivized to ally against the rising of China. And uh, Xi's strong, sure hand on power now seems more precarious. Right? We've got restive university students. Right? The, the future economically looks bleak for China. That was the one thing the Chinese Communist Party had going for them, is uh, good management of the economy. Well, now the economy is not doing so well. The Chinese vaccines don't really work very well. So China's zero COVID policies have disrupted the economy, disrupted society, they've killed people, but uh, public support for these zero COVID policies have gone away. So more and more Chinese are sick of the authoritarian security state. Uh, we had one man protesting in northwest Beijing, unfurling a banner denouncing Xi Jinping as a despotic traitor. But the most interesting thing about all this is that China is backing away from its harsh COVID rules, right? We've got all these Chinese cities announcing easing of lockdowns, easing of testing requirements, return to work. Right? So the ruling Chinese Communist Party is backing down on these unpopular COVID restrictions in response to this wave of mass protests. Right. These protests have been the most widespread challenge to Beijing in 30, 30 plus years. I was at UCLA 
in the spring of 1989 when they had the Tiananmen Square protests. Kind of reminding me a little bit of, of that time. So we got protests in over a dozen cities in China against Beijing's tight COVID lockdown policies. Now the party is showing it's willing to address the root cause of the public anger, intrusive pandemic controls that have stifled economic growth, left millions of people confined to their homes for long stretches, and setting off violent protests. So top security officials are warning that they will crack down on these public protests. But what's striking is that the police measures so far have been quite mild. So how far will China be willing to compromise? And will the protesters accept these compromises? So if uh, Beijing removes its heavy-handed approach to COVID, you could have millions of Chinese dying from COVID. So China is no longer using its phrase dynamic zero COVID, right? That's how it described its policy, but it stopped using that language. So now they're talking about, oh, we're entering a new phase, right? It's like, uh, remember, I had this article, it's going to be published in the forward. It's a Jewish online and publication, it used to be a weekly print newspaper. And I wrote a piece that was all set for publication, and then they decided, oh, we're going to go going to go in a new direction. Is the Kanye West Alex Jones story the topic of conversation among the Sheilas at the beach? No. Just riding across the bay is just such a Sydney Harbour, is such a, a gentle rocking motion in, in the ferry. People are just happy here. I very rarely hear words of anger. Politics isn't particularly important. People just like to go to the beach here and have fun. So the Chinese officials who are announcing change in policy, all right, this one official, she's not wearing a mask. So when the, uh, when the editor decided at the forward they didn't want to publish me, right, they just used the euphemism, we're going in a new direction, all right. So we're going in a new direction means that uh, we're, we're not going forward with what we had planned. So China is altering its approach to COVID due to these protests. And so what further changes may be inspired by these protests? Maybe many of China's elites will see that Xi Jinping has been doing a terrible job of governing the country over the past few years and removing from power. So we could be on the verge of major change in China. China is in a very nasty position. And I frequently said I don't believe that China as a nation state as we know it today will still exist in 10 years. I've been saying this for several years, about seven years, I mean, eight years I've been talking about how China is not nearly as strong as it presents itself or as it is presented in the news media. So we could have all sorts of small steps that could lead to big differences in how China operates. 
right? The easing of lockdowns, unhooking of masks, deviating from COVID-19 protocols, people being allowed to go back to work, limiting testing requirements, limiting lockdowns, rolling back of controls across social media and chat groups. So a lot of the protesters are talking about how happy they are, They're picturing how life could be after the country's restrictions are loosed. Right, now, China could lurch from one crisis, the protest, to another. There are hundreds of thousands of mass infections, overwhelming hospitals, hundreds of thousands and then millions of uh, dead Chinese. So really the only thing Chinese Communist Party has had going for it is that it seems ostensibly to have limited death rates from COVID. But if they ease and then have mass death in response to COVID, then the Chinese Communist Party doesn't even have that going for it. So a month ago, these, these kind of widespread protests were absolutely unthinkable in China. You know, normally, dissent is absolutely smothered by censorship and surveillance and a very powerful security state. But now we're looking at how dissatisfaction over ostensibly COVID prevention measures can quickly spiral into much deeper grievances about how the Chinese Communist Party is asserting itself into the daily life of ordinary Chinese, crushing, crushing them. So... Chinese may be tired of the shrinking space for expression. There's a death of a famous Chinese politician this week. They may try to seize momentum in the morning. So worth keeping an eye on China and see if these protests escalate into something more more threatening to the Chinese Communist Party, and if China's elites decide that uh, they're no longer well served by Xi Jinping. G'day mate, 40 here. Just uh, looking over Sydney Harbour, looking across to Watson's Bay, and uh, listening to Sex Scandal and Sisterhood, 50 Years of the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders. Way from the Dallas courthouse through the Supreme Court, where it would ignite a battle that's still raging. Okay, so the Dallas Cowboys debuted their cheerleaders in 1972. It was the year Deep Throat hit American theaters, launching a vogue for porno chic. And it was the year Title IX passed, opening the door for women in athletics. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were a watershed, too, combining the precision of the East Texas drill team, the Kilgore Rangerettes, with the class of the Radio City Rockettes, and adding a dose of old-fashioned Texas razzle-dazzle. We're looking for an all-American sexy girl. Choreographer Texi Waterman once told a local news station, taking a bite out of that word sexy. And this internal contradiction of being good, but also a bit bad, of being innocent, but also a bit dangerous, became an essential part of their brand and their explosion. To follow the Dallas Cowboys... So, I don't think I've seen any Dallas Cowboys insignia regalia since I've been in Australia. There was a time in the 1980s when Channel 4 in Britain started showing NFL games and, and Britain developed 
a large number of NFL fans, but uh, that, that fairly quickly died away when Britain started the Premier League and started televising more of their own homegrown sports. So, you know, the World Cup is going on right now, and there are billions, billions of fans. But uh, when when the Super Bowl gets played, there may be four million people around the world will watch the Super Bowl live. Right? So, you know, maybe 120 million Americans, but only about 4 million people around the world. So, National Football League, uh, like, that's largely an American sport. I mean, the, the English sports are far more dominant, generally speaking, than the American sports. They attract far more world attention. So, the NFL is just curiosity in England and in Australia and in Europe. Like when, you, when you see how many millions and billions of people watch the World Cup, right? Uh, you know, the American sports of baseball and the National Football League just don't compete with that. So Sydney and Melbourne are having big live viewings. The Socceroos are playing at uh, 6 a.m. on Sunday morning in uh, Darling Harbour. So I'm going to try to get up early and get over to the, the live viewing with my fellow fans in Sydney. His cheerleaders over the next half century is to watch the pop sexualization of women on television, on billboards, magazine covers, in swimsuit column. Look, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders didn't sexualize women, right? We were evolutionarily designed to sexualize women. Now, things like Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and sex nudity and movies, TV shows, that became making out DVDs that became a reality TV show. Though their spot in culture is singular, their struggles and triumphs speak to women's rising place in the world, how we look, how we behave. Yeah, women's rising place in the world, right? That comes at the price of women's falling price place in the world in other areas, such as you know, the traditional woman who gets married, has kids, is a mother. Right, so women's liberation and feminism you know, raised possibilities, freedoms, and social status for certain women, such as those who weren't going to be settled down by marriage and children, while simultaneously lowering freedom, status, opportunities for other women and for certain men. Who and what determines our value? These days, they're seen as a legacy. Okay, who or what determines our value? Our value is determined by what we do for other people. So if your beauty provides joy and inspiration to people, that's a power. If your eloquence provides joy and inspiration to people, that's a power. If your confidence provides needed services, that reliability to people, that's a power, right? Our value depends upon what we can give to other people. A throwback to another era. Their instantly recognizable uniform was donated to the Smithsonian in 2018, a piece of American lore alongside Dorothy's slippers and Abraham Lincoln's top hat. But the squad has also slipped from its pedestal. Across the NFL, the past decade has brought fair wage lawsuits, sexual harassment claims. Right, none of these things have uh, reduced the, the pedestal of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. I mean, who had them on a pedestal anyway, aside from they're sexy and fun to look at? And bad press. Oh, one of the things I was amazed at 
is in televised National Football League games, they only show the, the cheerleaders for a maximum of something like one and a half seconds or two seconds. They have a limit for, for how long they'll show cheerleaders at a time. And it's like really short, it's something like two seconds. Professional cheerleaders for other teams are moving away from sexy sideline dancing, adopting more modest uniforms, and adding men to their squads. The oh yeah, that's great, man. Nothing like adding men to a squad. More modest uniforms, more modest routines, like adding adding a transsexual to the squad. I mean, that's really going to appeal to National Football League fans. Lina Panthers recently brought on the first openly trans cheerleader. Oh man, I bet that was a huge, huge hit with the fans. Nothing I like more going to a football game and getting to feast my eyes on some delicious transsexual cheerleader. Whether fans wanted these changes is another matter. In February, scandal hit the Dallas Cowboys when ESPN broke the story that the team's number one PR guy, Richard Dalrymple, had been accused of using his phone to film for cheerleaders in their dressing room back in 2015. Yeah, that sounds like something out of Porky's magazine. Right? Women have been posing for men, and men have been taking pictures of women for as long as it's been possible. Now, this was apparently done without their consent, so yeah, that's, that ends a whole different realm. Resulting in a $2.4 million settlement. The company line had always been that the cheerleaders were protected. The extensive rules that had been put in place decades earlier. Yeah, okay, you can try to protect people, but uh, just because you can't protect them perfectly, is it then all pointless? Right? Having rules, procedures, an ethos, a culture, right, to protect women, all right, that's all a good thing, but uh, no, no form of protection is going to be perfect. Dictating everything from how the cheerleaders dressed to the way they conducted themselves off the field were supposedly for their own good, meant to guard their safety as well as their image. Yet here was the team's own PR guy being accused of creating a PR disaster. Wow, just imagine that, an organization is not able to exert 100% control over all its employees at all times. Shocking. Anything that is human is susceptible to corruption. A squad that prided themselves on wholesome sexiness. This was seedy indeed. The Cowboys and... De so uh, Skip Bayless says the best film about the National Football League and the best novel is North Dallas 40 by Peter Gent, a former player for the Dallas Cowboys. I remember reading this novel in the summer of 1980. It kind of shook me up a bit. A, you know, unflinching, accurate, you know, fair look at the Dallas Cowboys. Buffalo looks like they're moving to nine and three. Yeah, they're just absolutely destroying the New England Patriots. Is, is Bill Belichick just a 500 coach without Tom Brady? I mean, it sure looks like he's just another guy, just another coach, a 500 coach without Tom Brady. Al Rimple denied any wrongdoing, but my phone blew up with cheerleaders I'd gotten to know during the year I spent interviewing them for the Texas Monthly podcast, America's Girls. How had this happened? Had it happened other times? On sports radio and Twitter and in casual conversation, I heard questions that had dogged me since I'd started this project. Did the world still need professional cheerleaders? Did we? Did we need them? Right, they add entertainment. Right, sports is entertainment. Now, 
about sports it's also largely about community right sports is, is about creating a sense of connection right so people who go into a world that, that feels disconnected all right they, they want to connect and so that's probably the main power of sports remember when I told Ford about Josh Allen from five or five years ago yeah Josh Allen quite the quarterback looks like he's absolutely putting it to the uh, Patriots okay I've been reading a great book it's called Socketnomics the 2022 edition by European men and American women win and billionaire owners are destined to lose so this book says that uh, the world's most innovative soccer country is Germany and ex-players have now lost their monopoly on managerial jobs so yes should not be written in stone that only former players can become soccer managers so the German Soccer Federation now has a training course to certify professional coaches for people who did not play professionally. So it helps to know the smell of the stables in professional soccer, but there's only one aspect to being a coach, how you pedagogically, analytically, communicatively. <laughs> okay, how has soccer remained such an incompetent business for so long? Well, soccer clubs tend to hire incompetent staff. Baseball for a long time was just as incompetent. Moneyball, great book, Michael Lewis asks, why among baseball executives and scouts there really is no level of incompetence that won't be tolerated? But the main reason was that uh, baseball has structured itself less as a business or as a social club. There are many ways to embarrass the club, but being bad at your job is not one of them. The greatest offense a club member can commit is not ineptitude, but disloyalty. So club members are selected for their club ability. Clever outsiders are not clubbable, they talk funny, they go around pointing out the things that people inside the club are doing wrong. So, the staff of soccer clubs traditionally tend not merely to be incompetent, they're also novices because the turnover is so rapid, whenever a new manager arrives, he generally brings in his cronies. And uh, the media and the fans make it impossible for clubs to make sensible decisions, they're always hassling the club to do something immediately. So it talks about a business executive, Chris Anderson, entered soccer specifically with the aim of making the game smarter. His wife gave him a copy of Moneyball in 2009. He read it open mouth. He began blogging about soccer data. He wrote a book, The Numbers Game, 2015. He gave up his tenured job as an economist at Cornell, become managing director of the Coventry City in England's League One of Soccer. He lasted only 11 months. But, uh, came away with some insights into why clubs don't think very hard. It's hard to come across a, singly, a single innovative club anywhere in soccer. A club that benefits from all the new knowledge in physiology, psychology, sports data, organizational science. Time is the greatest luxury in football. Uh, European soccer clubs can be relegated, which means financial disaster. Clubs in American sports are usually free from that pressure. So you find innovators in some NBA teams, such as the Houston Rockets, the Philadelphia 76ers. 
Yeah, this is a good insight. If you do everything the same as all the other clubs, then you can't be blamed or humiliated if things go wrong. So most soccer clubs are packed if people have always done things the old way. So everyone keeps doing the same things they've done forever, even if those things have never worked out. Also, soccer has a masculine culture and a working class industry that encourages stubbornness. It is now, it's about uh, two o'clock on Friday afternoon here. I'm going to try to catch up with the, the chat. Bloody hell, phone's not cooperating. But uh, anyway, loving this book, Psychonomics. Clubs with the most freedom to innovate are the clubs with no pre-existing culture. So historically in Western countries, attitudes to bankruptcy have been harsh. I remember I had a history teacher at Sierra Community College, he got a PhD in history, and he did his PhD thesis on the very different way that America handles bankruptcy. It gives people a second chance, much more lenient than the way Europe handled bankruptcy. So in 19th century England, bankrupts were still being sent to prison. Over time, Europe has become more like America. People see bankruptcy increasingly as bad judgment. When I was a kid, I read every NFL team basically just said, hey, I'm an eight-year-old kid. Can you give me anything? And uh, they, they cooperate. Well, I'm not sure you can do it, but I would tip you just to rip your first hot takes on every Aussie rules clubs. Okay. Not a huge Aussie Rules fan. Ah, I used to do that with all the TV stations. I wrote to all the sportscasters and all the leading TV stations and radio stations in San Francisco, and they all applied, replied, including the guy who called that famous uh, Cal Stanford game where Cal returned it for a touchdown at the last second, you know, and they ran through the Stanford Stanford band. So the radio announcer, I think Joe Starkey, he wrote me a postcard filled with tips on how to become a sports announcer and so all the TV stations sent me autographed pictures of their sports anchors. Also if you want to travel to England the English Embassy like just gives you tons and tons of stuff. So bankruptcy is how soccer clubs tend to stay alive. So in 1979 US introduced the famous chapter 11 provisions that protect a firm from its creditors while it tries to work out a solution that saves the business. So Britain adopted that. Later, Italy, Germany, Spain, France adopted versions of these more forgiven, forgiving American bankruptcy laws, and this has proved to be a giant boon to soccer clubs. So in 1991, Ron Rhodes, chairman of Crystal Palace, said on British TV, the problem with black players, whose heavily black team had just finished third in England, is that they're great at pace, they're great athletes, they love to play with the ball in front of them, but when it's behind them, it's chaos. I don't think too many of them can read the game. When you're getting into the midwinter, you need a few of the hard white men to carry the athletic black players through. Oh, disavow. So racist. How could you say that on TV? So, this interview was one of the last flourishes of unabashed racism in British soccer. Through the 1980s, racism had been taken for granted. Pundits explained the 
curious absence of black players at Liverpool and Everton by saying they haven't got the bottle. So I think bottle means strength. So no bottle is a particular favourite for black players. It means a lack of concentration. Oh, no bottle, no strength, and no stamina. Have you heard that expression, no bottle? Then lack of concentration, another racist trope about black soccer players. You don't want too many of them in your defence. They cave in under pressure. And there's the curious conviction that blacks are susceptible to the cold and won't go out when it rains. Crazy! How could people think these ridiculous racist things? So as late as 1993, you can still witness the following scene in London. God, I must prepare you, this is a, a racist scene. Right? A crowd of people in a pub watching England versus Holland on TV. Every time Jamaican-born John Barnes gets the ball, one man in shirt sleeves and a tie just out of his city office makes monkey noises every time his co-workers laughed. If anyone had complained, let alone gone off to find a police officer and ask him to arrest the man, the response would have been, where's your sense of humor? Boy, I'm sure glad that we, we moved past that, that kind of racist England. Back in the 1970s, there were very few black players in English soccer. Only two clubs in the 1973-74 season fielded any black players. By 1983-84, there were 20 teams that did not field any black players. By 1989, every team fielded at least one black player. By 1992, when the Premier League was founded, only five teams did not field a black player that season. So 90% of the clubs were putting black players in the field on the first team. So almost all these black players were born in Britain, 90%. Most of them were strikers. They were 58%. There were no black goalkeepers. They were underrepresented in defense. So only 1.6% of people in the 1991 British census described themselves as black. Yet in the early 90s, 10% of all players in English professional soccer were black. By the end of the decade, the share was 20%. In 2021, the proportion of black players in the English Premier League was over 40%. So the general obsession with changing managers, the same as changing coaches in American sports, is a version of the great man theory of history, the idea that prominent individuals such as a Genghis Khan or a Napoleon cause historical change. But I'll have you know, academic historians binned this theory decades ago. Right, when you look at the clubs who have won the European Cup since the competition began in 1956, all right, almost all the winners for the first 15 years were dominated by the capital cities of fascist regimes, right? Eight, the first 11 European Cups were won by Real Madrid, the favorite soccer club of General Francisco Franco or Benfica from the capital of Portuguese dictator Salazar. Seven of the losing teams in the first 16 finals came from fascist capitals. By the start of the 1970s, the dominance of fascist capitals was ending. from Europe's remaining dictatorial capitals continue to thrive. The totalitarian capitals got off to a great start in the European Cup. The first 42 years of the European Cup, democratic capitals never won it. So, provincial soccer teams are usually the most successful because they dominate their towns. Okay.
I used to have a Liverpool Dragon type t-shirt when he scored on Brazil a few cups ago. I put on my ratty Liverpool Dragon t-shirt, drag my, oh, my balls on her face. Good times. Thanks, Michael Owen. Just a normal day in paradise. Okay. So provincial Western European cities dominate the European Cup and Champions League. Why? Okay. Capitals tend to have the greatest concentration of national resources, so why do their teams teams behave perform so badly? Right. The main reason teams from democratic capital cities aren't so much up for winning. Right? No soccer club matters that much in a capital city, just like Los Angeles didn't have an NFL team for about 25 years, and it wasn't really a big deal. So in the late 1990s, a group of visiting fans from an English provincial town could wander down London's Baker Street, yelling their club songs at passers-by. So in their minds, they were shaming the Londoners. They were invading the city for a day, making all the noise. But to the Londoners, who were being shouted at, many of them were foreigners. They didn't care about or even understand the point that was being made. So London, Paris, Moscow don't need to win the Champions League in soccer. It's a different type of city where a soccer club can mean everything. You need a provincial industrial town. So these are the places that have ousted the fascist capitals as rulers of European soccer. So by 1892, all 28 English professional clubs were from the North or the Midlands. So places that were poor, that were legacies of the Industrial Revolution, and they still shape English fandom. So the combined population of Grady, Greater Merseyside, Greater Manchester and Lancashire County is less than 5.5 million, about 10% of the English population. Don't you dare say that George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. At the end of the 2021 season, the top three teams in the Premier League table, the two Manchester teams and Liverpool, are all based in the same region. Right? They have a century of brand building. Manchester United is the most popular club on earth because Manchester being the first industrial city on earth. Right? The first 43 professional soccer clubs were within... Why do you think American sports... Why, why aren't they amateur? Why don't they have amateur clubs? Is that... Why do you think they're being amateur and collegiate? Oh, well, there are plenty of amateur and collegiate sports. Uh, they just don't attract as much attention. So 43 soccer clubs within 90 miles of Manchester represent the greatest soccer density in the world. Almost all of Europe's best traditional soccer cities are industrial centers, right? They're industrial centers that sucked in helpless villages, right? People came to cities that had industry to get jobs. The newcomers cast around for something to belong to and they settled on soccer. So sports and religion meet the same need for connection, right? You could move to a new city and find a synagogue or a church or you could support the soccer club, right? People want to belong. So supporting a soccer club or going to church or a synagogue helps you make a place for yourself in a new city. Real Madrid is the king of European soccer with 13 European Cups. It's the exception. All the other major powers are provincial industrial towns, Barcelona, Manchester, Turin, Munich, Milan, Inter and Hamburg. 
Also, the smaller industrial cities, Liverpool, Glasgow, Nottingham, Birmingham, Marseille, Porto, Dortmund, Eindhoven, and Rotterdam have won 16 European club, uh, Cups. Right? All these industrial cities have stories much like Manchester's. Peasants arrive from the countryside, they leave all their roots behind, they need something to belong to in the new cities. They can choose religion, but they usually choose soccer. So soccer clubs arise soon after factories. And this link between industry and soccer is universal across Europe. Industrial cities historically love their clubs most intensely. Now the Industrial Revolution has ended. You now have empty docks and factory buildings. But uh, you still have fans who love their clubs. So contrast these industrial cities with old towns with a traditional upper-class street such as Oxford, Cambridge, Cheltenham, Canterbury, York and Bath, right? They don't tend to develop serious soccer traditions. Their teams play in England's third-tier league. They're upmarket towns with age-old hierarchies and few incoming peasants. People there don't need soccer clubs to root themselves. So, in many people's lives, sports is the most important communal activity. About a third of Americans watch the Super Bowl, but European soccer is far more popular. In the Netherlands, right, three quarters of the population have watched Holland's biggest games. And in European countries, World Cups probably the greatest shared events of any kind. And is that the exact sequence of, of events that led uh, Trump? Having dinner with Nick Fuentes, who invited whom? Trump and Trump and Kanye knew each other, and so Kanye was coming to have dinner with Trump, and then Kanye got got contacted with Milo, who said, "Bring along Nick Fuentes." So, do people commit suicide after major sporting events? The evidence says that sports tends to save more lives than it takes, because sports gives people community and meaning and purpose to their lives some connection so typical soccer tournament or sporting event saves hundreds of lives also sports provide an outlet for primal tribal racial and national feelings so there are a few outlets which permit open expression of tribal racial and national feelings sports is one of the few perhaps the most powerful so you have a common interest and endeavor you fuse it with nationalism, you have enhanced social cohesion and decreased suicide. So social cohesion, that's the key phrase here. That's the benefit that all sports fans get to enjoy. So there are fewer suicides than the rest of us. They get social cohesion from fandom. Winning or losing is not the point. You get social cohesion even when you lose. Nations, communities will frequently bond over a defeat in a big sporting event. People cry in public, they perform postmortems in the office the next morning, they hunt for scapegoats together, it brings people together. Right? So losing matches does not make people in significant numbers so unhappy that they jump off buildings. Right? Fans of longtime losers like the Chicago Cubs, Boston Red Sox, right? they didn't kill themselves more than other people.
So it's not the winning that counts, but it's the taking part. It's the shared experience for sports ball that brings people together. You wear the team regalia. You watch games together in bars. You talk about the team, right? You pull together. This saves people from suicide and from loneliness. There are fewer suicides in the U.S. on Super Bowl Sundays than on other Sundays, but there is more domestic violence. So men tend to get agitated and beat their wives when there's sports going on. But with sports, you get a sense of belonging. It's a lifesaver. Nothing brings a society together like a World Cup with your team in it. Socceroos, 6 a.m. Sunday here in Sydney. Right? Everyone in the country is watching the same TV show, talking about it the next day at work. Part of the point of watching a World Cup is that almost everyone else is watching it too. Isolated people, types most at risk of suicide, lonely people, are suddenly welcomed into the national conversation. They are given a social cohesion. Even really awkward people, even losers. So big soccer tournaments save so many lives because we all pull together. It's a universal impulse. It often drags women along with it in a way that club soccer does not. The only alternatives to this are probably war and catastrophe that create that sort of national unity. So when John F. Kennedy was killed, not one suicide was reported in the week after John F. Kennedy's murder because the whole nation pulled together. In the U.S. after 9-11, right, had an all-time low in course of the 1-800-SUICIDE hotline. In Britain in 1997, suicides declined after Princess Diana died. So this pulling together through sports particularly suits individuals who have poor interpersonal skills, and these are characteristics of severely depressed and suicidal persons. So you do not have to be charming to be a fan among fans. Right? You can you can uh, you can be welcomed to the club. So connects people. That's what sports does. Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Denied any wrongdoing, but my phone blew up with cheerleaders I'd gotten to know during the year I spent interviewing them for the Texas Monthly podcast, America's Girls. How had this happened? Had it happened other times? On sports radio and Twitter and in casual conversation, I heard questions that had dogged me since I'd started this project. Did the world still need professional cheerleaders? Did we ever? history books won't tell you the true origin story of the cheerleaders. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders began as the creation of one man, Texas E. Schramm, reads a 1984 tome on the Cowboys. Nope. Try again. General manager Tex Schramm, who helped launch the franchise in 1960, was a visionary, a former CBS executive who saw that the future of professional sports was television. And it's true. He kept the squad alive during the years when born-again coach Tom Landry wanted them gone. But the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders are actually the creation of a few women whose innovative ideas and contributions have mostly been forgotten. Dee Brock was a woman of the world when... So Textram once tried to show Tom Landry uh, Debbie Does Dallas and uh, Tom Landry took great offense and walked out very quickly. So, the world could be quite small for women. 
She got her PhD in literature at the University of North Texas after marrying longtime Dallas Times Herald columnist Bob Brock, with whom she had three sons. She taught high school English, though she'd later become a founding faculty member at the city's first community college, El Centro. She was uncommonly beautiful, blonde and five feet seven, and she modeled on the side. She also had a sense of humor. I don't really like girls that have that much breast. Brock remembered legendary clothier Stanley Marcus once telling her as she prepped for a Neiman Marcus fashion show. Well, I'm sorry, she replied, but there they are. Sometime before the Cowboys' second season in 1961, Shram tapped her for a big idea. Beautiful models on the sidelines. Respectfully, Brock told him this dog wouldn't hunt. Models didn't move much, and they required money, something Shram didn't like to spend. She hatched a different plan. Recruit local high school girls. Pay them with a couple of tickets to the game. Give them some kerchiefs and pom-poms. It's free. Shram placed her in charge, and she spent the next decade trying to make this formula work, though ultimately it did not. She recruited teenage boys for an experiment in co-ed cheerleading, remembered mostly for its dumb name, the Cowbells and Bow. That is one of my embarrassing moments. Brock, now in her early 90s, told me at her home in Tyler. The name was a PR guy's stunt, and sadly, it stuck. My teams were strong, not bells and bows. Okay, better get a move on. I got miles to go before Shabbos. Bye bye.